Sometimes I forget to blink. Yeah. You know? I always forget to blink. I and then, to well, but then my contacts start drying up, and then I can't see Colin, and then I'm just kind of, like, squinting at him weird. Yeah. I wonder if he thinks that that's weird, or if that's normal for him now. Content may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion advised. Gorilla Grip, Ushi Gushi, Samsung Spin Cycle. <laughs> oh Welcome back to the podcast. Yay! We're in a basement. We're in a basement. It's hot in here. It's, it's getting hot in here. We keep, I keep I'm leaving. I'm taking off my... That's wrong. Okay, I keep leaving the doors, or the windows down here closed. It's not a good move. So now we have the windows open, so if you hear street noise, I don't care. Get over it. <laughs> We're in a basement. <laughs> we are in a basement. Oh my I'm God. Colin. I'm Sierra. And we're here. We are here. Annabelle's here. Annabelle is here. Annabelle's the roommate of Sierra. We gotta go. Yay! Yay! Let's do this shit. Woo, 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 woo. I wasn't even ready. I can do it again. That I was just was. Really... I no. I was just really afraid of getting too off topic and going on a stupid rant. So I had to. Oh, have you I gone to... on too many stupid rants recently? Literally every single episode, you send them to me, and I sit there and I listen, and I go, "Sierra, shut up." Oh. Nobody cares. If you'd like, I can cut more of them, but I think they're fun. No, I let you leave them in. I let you leave in the ones that you like. Actually, I really don't cut that much. All right. Welcome back to Sierra's Conspiracy Corner. Yay! We're back. We're back. I We did a mini Conspiracy Corner a while ago. I don't know how long ago, but I know we did one somewhat recently. It was, like, uh, no. the back end of an episode. Yes, it was. Okay, yeah, yeah. but that was, like, episode 20. We had one was at, like, really? nine. Yeah. Just throwing these numbers out there. Uh-huh. Someone else knows. Yeah. We had one at, like, nine, and then yeah. we had one at, like, 25. Yeah. It's been a minute. So it's been a minute. But I'm here to talk about some shit. Fuck right? yeah. So we're going to be talking about one one specific thing that has happened in the world. So we're going to go back in time. To Thanksgiving Eve, November 24th of 1971. Okay? 1971. And we are at the Portland International Airport. Okay? There is a man. His name is Dan Cooper. And he buys a one-way ticket using cash for a 30-minute trip to Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. So... He's, like, a regular-ass-looking dude. He's wearing, like, it's the 1970s, so everybody that was traveling on planes usually wear, like, suits, like, nice clothes and briefcases and shit. So he was dressed, like, in a suit with, like, a a little tie, like a skinny tie, and he was, like, in his 40s, like, mid-40s, white-ish-looking guy, you know? Just a regular dude at the airport. So um, the flight was Flight 305, and Mr. 305. <laughs> it's the Pitbull flight. They just play Pitbull music on repeat over the intercom. My God. I, okay, this is a warm brain <laughs> thought. I was walking a dog the other day, 
And we walked past a house with the number 305, and I was like, I really want a house with 305 on it, because you know how fun that would be? Your brain is full of worms. <laughs> that would be of, so fun. Your brain is full of worms that are being controlled by Pitbull. Abby Lee Miller runs the worms in my brain, and Pitbull runs the worms in your brain. That's what's I don't even know him that well. Yeah. That's He's okay. That's how it starts. Mr. Clean with music and he better just, drugs. He just gets in there and starts bossing him around, and you're going, what the hell's going on? <laughs> Why am I thinking about this guy so much? It's because of the worms. You know, he doesn't show his eyes enough for me to really get into it, though. Right. If I saw his eyeballs more... They're scary. I think I would be creaming on the daily. <laughs> They're scary. Are they? They're a little small. Right? Aren't yes. Pitbull's eyes kind of small? Yes. Yeah. So it, he looks more like a Pitbull. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Without glasses. He's not a dog. Do you know that Pitbull's not a dog? <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> Every time I search Pitbull, there's photos of this dog. And I can't believe that it makes music. <laughs> Wait a minute. I have... <laughs> Just a guy who thinks that Pitbull is an actual dog. <laughs> Pitbull eyes. Oh, those are all Pitbulls. Um, celebrity? Singer? Singer? Music man? Nope. Music man is... Pitbull. Who is that? That's John Travolta. <laughs> <laughs> Who is that dog that? does look like John Travolta. Stop! Why did you... <laughs> okay, on the blog, <laughs> wordabasement.com, I'm linking this BuzzFeed article. Oh my God. 23 dogs that look like celebrities because... um. Oh, Pitbull's eyes. Yeah. That's what I was... Pitbull... Singer. 305. Okay. Oh my gosh. He has funny eyes. You were right. I told you. He's got weird eyes. Pitbull has weird eyes, not clickbait. That's why he always wears glasses. Yeah. It's like, I'm gonna fix this. (laughs) He's insecure. (laughs) I would be too. Okay, so anyways. It could be his lack of eyebrows. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry to drag that on, but... Well, Pitbull doesn't wear a wig. I'll answer that for you right now. (laughs) He wears a bald cap. (laughs) Can you imagine? He's not actually bald. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) He fronts as a bald man? He's he's just Bob Rossin under there. (laughs) That's why his eyes look so weird. His bald cap's pulled all the way down to his eyebrows. It's just pulling his eyebrows back like this. (laughs) We have to stop talking about Pitbull. We have to stop. I We need to go. This story is going to be really long. So just like, don't get worm brain now. I always forget that when you're trying to rush through something, it's not because you're boring. It's because you want to get through the content because you have a lot of content. I have content. a lot of content. She's got 23 pages. Um, Today it's only like eight, but we'll get there. They're don't detailed. Worry about it. Don't okay. worry about it. Don't worry about it. So, all right. Flight 305. That's what started all of this. <laughs> So Dan Cooper gets on the aircraft, which is a Boeing 727, and he is carrying a briefcase and a brown paper bag. And he gets on the plane, and he takes seat 18E in the last row. And the flight was around one-third full and departed from Portland on time at 2.05 p.m. So Dan is on his way to Seattle, okay? Shortly after takeoff, Dan orders a bourbon and soda, which is fucking lit. But the flight from Portland to Seattle is only, like, 30 minutes. Like, it's not a very long flight. So there was, like, really no reason for him to get a bourbon and soda. You know, they weren't really like, oh, yeah, you can get a drink. They were just like, don't. (laughs) You're going to be there in, like, 20 minutes, you know. 
Um, so he orders a bourbon and soda, and after he orders this drink... He gets it when he lands. <laughs> yeah, for real. The service <laughs> takes forever. <laughs> you gotta take a ticket, walk up to the counter. After the stewardess, or the flight attendant, takes his order, he hands her a note. And she takes the note, and she is thinking that it's, like, some lonely-ass fucking loser, like, businessman. Yeah, he's getting a bourbon and soda on a 30-minute flight. Right. He's trying to hit on her. Yeah. Like, he's trying to give her his number or something like that. So she takes it and puts it in her purse. Yeah. And he turns around and leans towards her and says, Miss, you'd better take a look at that note. I have a bomb. My eyes are rolling. I know they shouldn't be because, you know, bomb threats. But, like, ugh, come on. Come up with something classic. That is classic. A plane on a bomb in 1971. Oh, yeah, that is, like, original. (laughs) That's new. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so in the 1970s, when, like, air travel, like, commercial air travel was becoming more popular, there were a lot of plane hijackings, surprisingly. So this wasn't, like, super out of the ordinary, you know? So the note was printed in all capital, very neat handwriting with a felt tip pen. And its exact wording is unknown because later on, Dan Cooper takes the note back. Like, he takes the note back. So the flight attendant recalled that it mentioned the bomb and directed her to sit next to him. There was an open seat next to him. And so apparently the note was like, I have a fucking bomb sit next to me (laughs) or something like that. (laughs) I have a fucking bomb sit down. Oh, my God. So... She did as she was asked, because this man has a bomb on a plane, and we're trying not to freak out the 35 other people on the plane. So she sits down next to him, and he opens the briefcase just long enough to show her what's inside. And inside was eight red cylinders in two rows of four with a wire attached to them and a large cylindrical battery. So she's like, oh, fuck, that's a bomb. I don't know what a bomb looks like, but that looks like a bomb. (laughs) Or it was just a bunch of cylinders with dildos inside. Yeah, could have been. But that could have been a bomb, too. You don't know. You know? Dan Cooper has some demands. Dedans. Dedans. He has Dedan Coopers. (laughs) (laughs) So his demands are $200,000 in, quote, negotiable American currency... So $200,000 in 1971 adjusted for inflation today is $1.4 million. Okay, so she would definitely have it. Who? The flight attendant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Just She's, have the negotiable funds. Yeah, right she has the negotiable funds, definitely. Yeah. Um, so he asks for the negotiable American money, or currency, sorry, four parachutes and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. He's like, okay. this is mine. This is mine now. Oh, my god! Thank you so much for this plane. I can't believe you just gave it to me. Thank you for this and all the fuel. I can't believe you just, like, let me have also, it. Also, like, <laughs> can you imagine just, like, hey, I want you to communicate with your team to get all these things, make it happen, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. They're not going to do that. They're going to be like, hey, by the way, this guy is trying to terrorize us, but. Yeah. So, Cooper tells the flight attendant to tell the captain all of this. And so she goes and tells him, um, and she comes back, and Cooper is now wearing dark wraparound sunglasses. Mr. 305. He's a cool guy. (laughs) So the captain, whose name was William A. Scott, contacted the Seattle-Tacoma airport. He was a Scott. Can't get off that plane scot-free. Okay. 
You know what? <laughs> Sometimes we have really good banter in between. <laughs> and yeah. other times it's and this other shit. times it's can't get off scot free <laughs> off the plane. So I love it here. Okay, so the pilot of the plane or the captain of the plane contacts the Seattle Tacoma Airport Air Traffic Control. Which then the air, air traffic control contacted local and federal authorities. And the 35 other passengers on the plane were told that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of a, quote, minor mechanical difficulty. So they're trying not to freak everybody out on the plane that there's a bomb, right? Um, so the president of the airline, which was called Northwest Orient, authorized payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with Cooper's demands. What the fuck? Yeah. That's what I'm saying, right? What are we doing? Why are we doing this? So the plane circled the Puget Sound for approximately two hours to allow Seattle police and the FBI sufficient time to assemble Cooper's parachutes and ransom money and to mobilize emergency personnel. So one of the flight attendants, her name was Tina Mucklow, and she recalled that Cooper, like, appeared familiar with the local terrain. So he said to her on the plane at one point in time, he was like, oh, looks like Tacoma down there, like, while they were flying over Tacoma. Um, and he also correctly mentioned that the McCord Air Force Base was only, like, a 20-minute drive at the time from the Seattle-Tacoma airport, which is true. Yeah. And McLeod described him as calm, polite, and well-spoken. Quote, he wasn't nervous. He seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm. Um, so then he ordered a second bourbon and soda. He's like, listen, now that our flight time is a little longer, yeah. why don't you keep them coming? Drinking and uh, flying. Yeah. So he ordered the second bourbon and soda, paid his drink tab. Good boy. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm hijacking this plane. And then he requested meals for the flight crew when they stopped in Seattle. Is he taking the flight crew too? Yeah, we'll get there. Don't worry about it. So Mucklow asked Cooper. They aren't getting off scot-free. They're not getting off at all. No, no. The passengers are getting off scot-less. Captain Scott-less. So the flight attendant asked dan cooper if he had a grudge with northwest orient the airline just with alice cooper because alice cooper has the cooler name so so cooper said i don't have a grudge against your airline miss i just have a grudge period unquote (laughs) period oh my god i am using that yeah i don't have a grudge against your airline i just have a grudge i don't hate you just your airline i don't hate your airline i just hate this Whatever we're doing right now, I hate it. (laughs) He gets really sassy with her. Let's talk about the money in the parachutes, right? Because the FBI and everybody has to get all this shit together. So the FBI agents assembled the ransom money from several Seattle area banks and gave him 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, most with serial numbers beginning with the letter L. They also took microfilm photographs of each bill. Oh, that's why it took so long. Yeah, that sounds fucking exhausting. 20,000. Imagine you get called so into work. So it's $1,000 of $1,020 bills? $10,020 bills. $200,000. That's a lot of bills <laughs> to take photos of. They must have done it in batch. They must have had photos. They I must have done something. I don't know. Or they just hired all the high schoolers. <laughs> no, they just had everybody come in on their What's day his off. Name? Treb style. What? Treb. <laughs> What are you talking about? I was editing that episode. You haven't heard it yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> Treb Balloon Art hires the high schoolers. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, fuck. I forgot about that. Jesus. I swear to God. Sorry. I black out every time we walk into this room. I swear. Okay. Anyways, they take pictures of every single dollar bill. Every Every single of the $10,020 bills. And then Cooper gets the parachutes, right? But they were military-issued parachutes offered by the Air Force, and he didn't want the military-issued ones. He wanted four civilian parachutes with manually-operated ripcords. And some speculate that he wanted the civilian parachutes because, one, he knew how to use the civilian chutes better, and, two, it would be harder for the military to noticeably fuck with the parachutes If they were civilian, they aren't as complicated. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, and I'm sure also if they catch him somewhere with a civilian shoot, that's a lot less damning as a U.S. Right. So Cooper is informed that his demands have been met. They have the money. They have the parachutes. And so the plane lands at Seattle Tacoma Airport in heavy rain around an hour after sunset. So they have been flying around for a while because remember, they left Portland at like two. So it's probably like five or six at this point. Is it winter? It's winter. It's November. Mm. Cooper instructed the pilot to taxi the jet to an isolated, brightly lit section of the tarmac. Um, And he also asked the crew of the flight to close all of the windows so that the snipers wouldn't see him. Like see where he was sitting on the plane. Because he was worried about getting sniped. So um, Northwest Orient's... Seattle operation manager, so the airline's operation manager for Seattle. His name is Al Lee. He, <laughs> he I'm not even going to say anything. Approaches the plane in street clothes and not in his like Northwest Orient uniform because he didn't want Cooper to think that he was a cop. He delivers this cash-filled knapsack, which weighs like 20 pounds, by the way. And um, he gives him the, or he gives the knapsack and the parachutes to the flight attendant, Mucklow. And once everything was like all completed, Cooper let all the passengers get off the plane. So he lets all the passengers get off the plane. And Schaffner, which is the flight attendant that received the note about the bomb, he let her and one of the senior flight attendants leave the plane as well. So he kept the captain the co-pilot, like an engineer of some sort, and then one or like two flight attendants on the plane with him, I think. So the refueling process for the plane, remember how we wanted like refueling ready to go? Yeah, it was delayed. Uh Oh, yeah. So now we're going to start getting angry and we're going to want to meet the manager. Angie, Um, (laughs) little Karen. Angie, little Cooper. The refueling process was delayed (laughs) and they brought in a second and third truck to refuel the plane. I don't know why it took so many trucks to refuel this plane, but go off. Um, and they probably weren't full of anything. They were probably just like... <laughs> just trying to stall. Yeah. Hoping that he just peeks out the little shade. They can snipe he him. He gets pissed off. Yeah. Stops Does it. something. Or just gives up. He just gets so mad. He's like, you know what, guys? Never mind. Never mind. Take the money back. Sorry. I'm good. I just... We're, we're gonna go. I'm gonna go home. I'm tired. <laughs> So an FAA official requested to meet with him face to face and Cooper was like, no, you (laughs) no, I don't want to have a meeting with you. So Cooper got impatient saying this shouldn't take so long and sent a note to the crew saying, let's get the show on the road, which is so funny to me. Like, that sounds like something my dad would say at like a stand up comedians thing or something like that or like a movie. Let's get this show on the road. 
(laughs) Fucking speed it up, guys. So Cooper gives his flight plan to the crew. And he says, we are going to go southeast towards Mexico City. We're going to Mexico. Uh. (laughs) Um, But I want to fly the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the plane. So that he can jump out. So he also specified that the landing gear remained deployed in the takeoff and landing position. Um, the wing flaps be lowered 15 degrees and the cabin remain unpressurized. So he so knows. So he can jump out. Right. Yeah, he's he's obviously he flown before. Yeah. yeah. Like he knows shit about flying. Right. He wanted the plane to fly at 250 miles per hour, which is really slow for a plane. And the pilots didn't even think that it was possible to fly with those parameters. So one of the pilots informed Cooper that the plane's range, like fuel range, was only limited to like a thousand miles, which meant that a second refueling would be necessary before they could get to Mexico, right? So Cooper and the crew fucking bitch at each other back and forth about it for a while. And they agreed that they were going to stop in the Reno Tahoe International Airport. So they're going to stop halfway, get more gas, go to Mexico City. Fun! Girls trip. (laughs) Cooper also wanted the plane to take off with the rear exit door open and its air stair extended. Which is like, dude, you're going to scrape the bottom of the plane as soon as you start like tilting up a little bit. Like you're going to scrape the stair underneath these, you know? What the fuck? Yeah. So Northwest, yeah, Northwest Orient was like, no, you can't. That's not safe. We can't do that. And Cooper was like, oh, all right, I'm not going to argue with you. I'll just put it down after we take off. (laughs) He's like the most chill plane hijacker in the world. What the fuck? Like, he's not demanding any of this. He's like bargaining with the with the crew. I guess you're right. Right. Fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got, okay. We can right. go talk to the sense. FAA now. Yeah, that's cool. You, you know what? Do you want? Do you want some of this money? <laughs> <laughs> he starts like being buddy buddy with them. Oh my god. Um. So we are back in the air, baby. We are uppies. Yay! Once again. So at around seven forty p.m., the Boeing seven twenty seven took off with Cooper Mucklow, the Muckbang. flight attendant, Muckbang, the flight attendant. Perfect. Um, Captain Scott, the first Free. officer, and a flight engineer. So there were only like five of them. Two F-106 fighter planes from the local Air Force base followed behind the airliner, and one was above it and one was below it. So the one above it, they didn't really care if Cooper saw it, but he didn't know that there was an, like a second fighter plane following that plane because it was like just out of his view. Yeah. So after takeoff, Cooper told the flight attendant Mucklow to go into the cockpit with the rest of the crew and stay there with the curtain closed. Um, And then at around 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit indicating that the air stair apparatus had been activated. The pilots asked on the cabin intercom if Cooper needed assistance, and he picked up the cabin phone and said, no. And that was the last message ever heard from Dan Cooper. The crew noticed a subjective change of air pressure, indicating that the back stair door was open, and at around 8.13 p.m., the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement large enough to require trimming to bring the plane back to level flight. So he just jumped out with the giant bag of money, and And they lost 200 pounds of weight, and the plane reacted. Yeah, and their ears popped because there was no pressure. There was nobody else that jumped out, though. No, just him. Okay. 
So he jumped out, and then at some point between 10 and 11.30, that's a big time frame for me. I don't know if I like that. Um, the 727 landed in Reno with the air stair still deployed. Um, Scrape. <laughs> <laughs> Just dragging. Should have put a wheel on There's this like fucker. sparks flying off the sides. None um, of them looked back. Mukbang didn't look back and be like, hey, he's gone. Let's go close that well, door. Well, I don't know if they can close the door while they're flying in the plane. They can, can they? You can open oh, it, I but guess I don't you know can't. if you can't close it. <gasps> That's right, because yeah. you'd have to, you could be sucked out or something. Yeah. Yeah. You could get sucky out into the uppies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were probably just like, let's stay strapped in. Strapped in. Okay, anyways, um, so FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff deputies, Reno police were all there. They were all there. Um, but they did not approach the plane in case the bomb was still alive. And Captain Scott confirmed that Cooper was no longer aboard, and an FBI bomb squad reported that the cabin was safe after a 30-minute sweep. So who... <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> you all right? Where'd he go? Who? Who is he? Where'd he go? Who the fuck is this guy? Why did he do it? Right? Jesus. Right? Yeah. Yeah. All of those questions. Yes. Because remember, this is before... The big one. The big one. <laughs> this is the before times. Yeah. You know? So let's talk about profiling. So if multiple people saw him and multiple people interacted with him, it should be pretty easy to like ID this guy. Yeah. So the flight attendants, Schaffner and Mucklau, interacted with Cooper the most, obviously. Um, and they were interviewed on the same night in separate cities, which is okay, cool, I guess. And they gave almost... Kind of hot, honestly. <laughs> kind of sexy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they gave almost identical descriptions of this guy, though. He was around 5'10". He was in his mid-40s. He had short, black, comb-backed hair. 170, 180 pounds. Olive skin tone with, like, no discernible accent. So he's just a regular-looking dude. Just a regular-looking white guy. You know? So the FBI relied heavily on the testimony of a guy named Bill Mitchell, who sat across from Cooper during the flight, like across the aisle. And there are some people that say he is of Mexican-American or Native American descent, but, like, it's not really... Nobody, nobody really knows. knows. Yeah. yeah. Nobody knows. And then composite sketch B. Let's talk about composite sketch B. And let me look it up for you really quick, because this picture sucks. <laughs> That looks like everyone, and that looks like no one. Who is that? He, that, like, well, AI-generated face. Yeah, that's Dan Cooper. <laughs> well, yeah. Last time Dan I saw Cooper. Dan Cooper, he looked exactly like that. You've never seen Dan Cooper until today. So, um, composite sketch B. They go off of that composite sketch a lot, and we'll talk about it later. So, they call him D.B. Cooper. This whole story is about D.B. Cooper. Right? That's what he's called. Because <laughs> you're going to be so mad. So the news reporters were listening to these FBI agents, like, talk about what's going on and who hijacked this plane and stuff. And they misheard him and thought that he said D.B. Cooper instead of Dan Cooper. Somewhere. What the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> I told you were going to be mad. <laughs> so, like, it's just sloppy reporting. Like, and now it's like this story is called D.B. Cooper. A cab. Instead of Dan Cooper. It's not the cop's fault. It's the media's fault. Oh, fuck the media. Yeah. Media might be worse than cops. All media are bad. Yep. (laughs) All meat, all all bones. Whoa. (laughs) Amab. Okay. You know what Amab is, right? I'm assigned male at birth. No. 
Yeah. Amen. All media are bad. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening, guys. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Okay, so, um, so yeah, they fucked up his name, and it's nobody ever calls him Dan Cooper ever again. They call him DB Cooper. So if I call him DB Cooper, it's the same person, DB Cooper and Dan Cooper. Dan Cooper was the name that he used on the ticket, but for some reason it got screwed up somewhere along the lines. Because media can't open their fucking ears. Yeah, open your fucking ears, media. So let's talk about evidence. What evidence did he leave behind on our plane after we did the little jumpy outies into the uppies? You know? Um, so he left three major pieces of evidence on the plane. His phone number. <laughs> his his phone government number, issued his ID. Address. <laughs> <laughs> his government <laughs> issued ID. It's perfect. Uh, no, so he left a black clip on tie, which like is so. Are you fucking serious? DB Cooper? Debbie Cooper? <laughs> Alice Cooper's brother <laughs> couldn't fucking tie a tie. Well, it's just so funny to Pitbull me. Pitbull 305, <laughs> Mr. 305 hijacker couldn't fucking tie a tie. Yeah. So he's got this slim black tie on, uh-huh. wrap around sunglasses. Uh-huh. I bet his sunglasses were made of like donuts or something. They're <laughs> fake too. <laughs> no, it was this the man heart is a sunglasses. fraud. Yeah. So well, and the funny thing about the clip-on tie is like he's so cool. This whole story is so cool until you get to the fucking clip-on tie. Like just this guy has a bomb, orders a bourbon, and knows soda, how to fucking fly a plane, knows how planes work, knows how to jump out of them. Into the uppies not with his money first rodeo. and get money and talk not to ladies. Not his first sky rodeo. Yeah, it's not his first sky rodeo, but it is his first sky rodeo with a clip on tie. <laughs> like it's he's like, so oh, cheesy. this is gonna be chafing on my way down. I right. better take it it's off. It's gonna be smacking me in the face. <laughs> okay, if I were hijacking a plane, I would wear a tie. You know why? A tie can be used for things. A clip on tie, not so much. You don't have a lot of length there. That's true. The black clip-on tie, the bane of Colin's existence. It had two <laughs> small DNA samples and one large DNA sample. And guess what? They were inconclusive. What kind of DNA? I don't know. I have no idea. Blood? No. He bleed blood. on his tie? Did he bled on his tie? <laughs> he Can you get DNA from skin? Yeah. Or hair? It's probably just skin Dead or skin hair skin follicles. Then. Yeah. Large. What do they mean by large DNA sample? I don't sample? know, Colin. And I don't know if the DNA samples were wearing wigs. <laughs> I don't think he wore a wig. He didn't. He was Pitbull. He was wearing a clip-on tie. He already had too much going on with the clip-on tie. Anyways, um, he also had a Mother of Pearl tie clip. And that was one of the other things that he left on the plane. Obviously, you and don't need the tie clip if you don't have the tie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not like he's like, oh, fuck my tie clip. <laughs> Oh my god! (laughs) He's falling out of the plane, and you hear, "Oh my tie clip! My tie clip! Throw it down!" (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah. So the clip, the tie, and then eight filter wrapped Raleigh cigarette butts. Nice. So he smoked eight cigarettes on that plane ride. That was allowed at one point in time. Isn't that crazy? Well, he also didn't have to follow the rules. No, but like even back then. Back in, like, the 70s, you were allowed to smoke on planes. Yeah, people were kind of stupid before the big one. <laughs> There's a so lot of things. Right. And, I mean, I feel like that's just rude. To smoke on an airplane? Around yeah. other people. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know how, like, I just don't get it. I guess everyone was fucking addicted, though. Everyone was doing it, and it was, like, the cool thing to do. Was it cool, though? Because everyone was doing it. 
Yes. Because I feel like those things don't go hand in hand. They do go hand in hand in the case of cigarettes. Okay. Well, I'll do an episode on big tobacco. You'll get it. <laughs> You'll understand. <laughs> okay. So um, do you want to know what happened to the eight cigarette butts? They lost them. <laughs> Can I say a cab now? Yeah. A cab. A cab. Why are you losing that shit? If we're trying to solve a crime. Did they not put it in a bag and yeah, label like, it? <laughs> what happened? They're like, oh, this looks like trash. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how they lost them. Like, honestly. <laughs> Fuck, you guys. Get it together. Oh, my god. So, they lose the cigarette butts. Um, But let's talk about the ransom money. Because some ransom money gets recovered. He forgot some? No. No, oh. no, no. Listen. So, it is February <gasps> 10th, 1980. So, we are nine years after our hijacking heist holy shit yeah no he disappeared off the face of the earth he jumped out of that plane with that fucking duffel bag of money which was weighed an extra 20 pounds by the way he took two parachutes with him left his tie his clip-on tie and his tie-on clip on the plane jumped out of the plane and was never seen again he probably took two parachutes in case one failed so bizarre so he must have just like ransacked a sequoia on his way down and just fucking died (laughs) he died in a tree i told annabelle that like he was on his way down and just got absolutely like he's he's never jumped out of an airplane at night before right and the interesting part was it was in the middle of a giant storm too where there was like 170 mile an hour winds up where at the elevation that they were at and he jumped out of the plane so he probably you know what he probably passed out right didn't deploy his shoots. But they never found anything. Yeah, but if anything. it's in the middle of fucking nowhere. Well, they went like over the flight path because they had interviewed the pilot and the pilot told him or told the FBI about like their somewhat accurate flight path while they were going to Reno. So they searched the entire, I mean, they looked, bitch. They looked for this dude. They looked for this money. Yeah, okay. But if you have fast winds up there, jumping out of a plane Right. And he immediately goes unconscious. Yeah. His, and I, I'm obviously speculating, but like... That's what I want you... I want you to speculate. But his body could be anywhere. Right. He could have, like, who knows? Maybe he got his chute opened, and if the winds are right, he floats over the ocean and right. lands in the ocean. Right. And lands sinks in a lake. to the bottom. Yeah. yeah, who knows? Yeah. But they never found him. He was never seen or heard from ever again. God does the delete on that motherfucker. Yeah. He said, control, alt, delete, shut down program. <laughs> yeah. DB Cooper. <laughs> Exit. <laughs> so. I don't have a record for DB Cooper. Should we get rid of yeah. this motherfucker? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so let's talk about the ransom money because they find some of the, some of DB Cooper's ransom money. So it's February 10th of 1980, nine years after, you know, right. he goes missing. And an eight-year-old named Brian Ingram was on vacation with his family on the Columbia River at the beachfront known as Tina Bar. Ooh, Ooh. tropical on February 10th. Tina Bar. Tina Bar. So he uncovered three packets of the ransom cash while fucking around in the sand. He's making a sandcastle or like a little fire pit area or something. And he just dug up three packets of money. Can you imagine of money. how cool that would be? I would shit just my like- pants. You literally are like, I'm going to treasure hunt. Dude, when I was like eight, I went to the local movie store to rent some VHS movies with my mom and my dad. Or maybe it was just my dad. My dad and I were in there. 
and I found a $100 bill on the floor. And I was so fucking stoked, bitch. It was the best feeling I've ever felt in my life. I was rich. I was filthy rich. I could do anything I wanted because I had $100. And I was on cloud fucking nine. And I go to my dad and I say, dad, look what I found. And I hold up the $100 bill. And he goes, you need to take that to the lady at the front right now. And you need to tell her that you found it so that we can give it back to the right person. And I said, but dad, no, I found but it. But dad, I don't want morals. <laughs> yeah, no, I want, but like I found finders, keepers, losers, weepers, dad. Yeah. Playground rules yeah. <laughs> in the streets. You know what? And then that I did. That blockbuster lady probably shoved it in her bra, yeah. went home with it. Yeah. And bought like, Shoes. I don't know. Shoes. Meth. Meth. Yep, it was in yeah. Running Springs, California, so Running Springs, man. Woo-wee. They are if running. If any of my friends from high school listen to this podcast, which I doubt they do, honestly, that's a bone That's a bone that I'd like to pick at my <laughs> high school I reunion. Have, yeah, you should pick that bone. But anyways, my dad told me to return the $100 bill yeah. to the lady at the front counter. Lame-o. Ruined my day. And then she gave the... That's why your life is so rough. And if then you had $100 more. Right now, God, things would be so different. We would be in our own studio by now, honestly. Exactly. But <laughs> so then she like found the lady and the lady like came up to me and was like, oh, thank you for finding that for me, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you're welcome. <laughs> I guess. Like, I was so excited. So I'm sure that's what this kid felt like. Yeah. That's me trying to well, relate to, to be Brian quite honest, Ingram. That was probably her last hundred dollars. Yeah. She probably would have had to like give her kids up to CPS. She probably would have had to like sold a kidney. Back. Why are you putting such a horrible <laughs> horrible life story on this girl? I'm not. Oh. I'm just saying that you probably did the right thing. I probably, kids probably did, got but I didn't live, want to. You know? You were fine. Am I? <laughs> I don't know. I don't fine. know. But I'm that fine. lady, what if what if? Oh no. <laughs> This is not what I want you to be what ifing about. <laughs> I have a whole script I want you to be what ifing about. All right, let's let's she get back on the first one. Money. If. She needed ransom money. That was it. That one hundred dollars ransom money. <laughs> you can have it back for hundred dollars. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Brian Ingram finds three packets of cash of the ransom cash um, while he's fucking around in the sand, and the, it totaled to five thousand eight hundred dollars. Okay. So the bills were pretty like disintegrated because they were exposed to the elements for like a pretty long time, but they were still bundled in rubber bands. So like they still had the rubber bands around them, but the dollar bill, like the bills themselves were kind of like they were falling apart, um, like eaten away at. So they weren't in anything. Though. No, and they were just rubber banded together given- and buried in the sand on the beach. Okay. So this leads me to believe that he landed and intentionally buried them there. So... We're going to fast forward way, way, way ahead in time to late 2020. They analyze the cells and the bacteria on the bills. And the analysis suggests that the bundles found at Tina Bar were not submerged in the river or buried dry at the time of the hijacking in November of 1971. Does that make sense? Yeah. So... This places the date range that the money entered the beach at least several months after the hijacking. But, another but, there was dredging, like construction dredging, happening on that stretch of the river in 1974, and the bills were never found. So that did, did means, they dredge the area? 
That means, yeah. And, like, between the time, they tried to. You know what I mean? But there's, like, so much land you have to cover, you know? Yeah. So I'm not sure if they had dredged that area before. But they dredged in 1974 for construction purposes or whatever. And the bills weren't there. But Brian Ingram found them in 1980. Which means that the bills were buried on the Columbia River at Tinabar between 1974 and 1980. But are we sure? Because you said just a couple seconds ago that it was months, not years Right, after. but that was because that was like the first like little illusion. But then they found out about the dredging. Gotcha. And so you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So back to 1986, we're going back. The recovered bills were divided equally between Brian Ingram, the kid who found them, and Northwest Orient's insurer, the airline company's insurer. Um, And the FBI kept 14 of them as evidence, which I don't think is enough. I don't think that's enough evidence to keep as the FBI. Are you running out of room? (laughs) Like, why did you keep so little evidence? They probably sampled. I feel like that's a good sample size for... Because it's no longer currency. Yeah, it's that's evidence. True. Yeah. So they don't care how much it is. They care about the amount of actual, like, the data of, right. like, you have a corner yeah. of a bill, you can test it. Yeah. I know what you're saying. Give me more. I want to test more. <laughs> <laughs> Give um, me more. Give me all of your right. $20 bills Please. and I will test them. I will test them to make sure that they work at local establishments. I will give them COVID tests. Yes. So Ingram, Brian Ingram, sold 15 of his bills at an auction in 2008. So he was 16 when he sold these bills. <laughs> or so, not sorry. Sorry, wait, hang on. 1986, that's when he, so he found the bills in 1980. And then in 2000, and, in 1980, he was eight. And then in 2008, can you do the math for me really quick? I want to make sure this isn't like a kid doing this transaction. 1980 to 2008, right? Mm-hmm. He was 28. Okay. At 28. Wait, sorry. That's that's 28 years plus eight. So he was 32. 36. Uh, 36. So when he was... We can't fucking do math. <laughs> <laughs> and I refused. nine plus ten. <laughs> um, okay. So when he was 36, he sold 15 of the bills. I thought you just said 16. Nope. He sold 15, 15. of them. Okay. For... $37,000. Dang. And this is the only confirmed physical evidence from the hijacking ever found outside of the aircraft. We have no more physical evidence. That's it. So, let's talk about the suspects. Bitch. I'm so... There are so many suspects for this case because this is a 50-year-old case. And it is, like, there are fucking psychopaths that we will talk about that are obsessed with D.B. Cooper. There is a D.B. Cooper, like, comic con, basically. It's like a comic con for D.B. Cooper. And D.B. Cooper people, they call themselves Cooperites. What the fuck? They're fucking obsessed with this shit. There's, like, conventions. There's a D.B. Cooper-themed brewery in Portland. Like, they're obsessed with it. This mediocre white man. Although, okay, I do have to say, it was smart to not actually take the plane with you. Yeah. You literally got off scot-free. Yeah. Literally. William A. scot-free. That's great. Yeah. Well, and think about it. Like, he did exactly what everyone wants to do. He got $200,000 and fucking disappeared. 
Yeah. And was never heard from ever again. And, like, I saw clips of people being interviewed about, like, what they thought about D.B. Cooper and stuff. And this is the 70s. So, like, you know, revolution and shit like that. Peace, love, happiness, whatever. So, like, everybody that they interviewed was like, honestly, it's kind of cool that he did it, you know? Like, he got away with it. Like, how dope is that, you know? So, like, there's, like, that idealism behind it. But then it's just, like, I think because of the true crime renaissance, I guess, is the way I'm going to put it. Or, like, the true crime revolution. People have just gone above and beyond. Because you can literally go, because of the Freedom of Information Act, you can go onto the FBI's website and look up all the documents that they had about this case. Yeah. And you can do your own research. Yeah. So, like, regular-ass people are doing that now. Okay, so back on track, we are talking about the suspects. 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 Ah. (laughs) (laughs) So, there are so, so, so many suspects. Shut up, Mike Stand. Because this is a 50-year-old case, and it was televised nationwide, worldwide. So, people were calling in and saying, oh, my brother's uncle's cousin's guy is in jail He's D.B. Cooper. And like... The he's F- in jail, you idiot. The FBI You just said he's in jail. ...processed thousands and thousands of leads about D.B. Cooper. Ugh. And we're, I'm only going to talk about a select few suspects that I enjoy hearing their stories about why they're suspects. Top suspects. So, Sierra's top suspects. Okay, number one. Barbara Dayton. So Barbara Dayton was born a male, as a male. Um, Assigned male at birth, AMAB. AMAB, all meat, all bones. And she served in the U.S. Merchant Marine and Army. Um, And after discharge, they worked with explosives in the construction field. So there's your explosives, you know, the bomb. (gasps) Okay. Okay. They also aspired to be a commercial pilot, but couldn't get the license. They got gender reassignment surgery in 1969 and changed their name to Barbara. And then she claimed to have been D.B. Cooper and present herself as a man, like dress as a man. She claimed to be D.B. Cooper. In order to, quote, get back at the airline industry and the FAA, whose rules and conditions prevented her from becoming an airline pilot. Because she's a trans woman. I don't know. Well, I know women weren't for a while right. allowed to, so I'm guessing I, it was I, either that or something else. Yeah, I don't know the that exact reason. That is crazy. Why she could. Okay, it, but if you're claiming to be a criminal, right. like a specific criminal, well, then she recanted her entire story after learning that hijacking charges could still be brought against her. Like there was no statute of limitations. <laughs> so she was like, "Oh, yep, nope, never mind. Wasn't me. Didn't do it. Sorry, God. guys. False alarm." <laughs> Um, and then the FBI never commented publicly on Dayton, and she passed away in 2002. So that is contestant number one. Contestant number two. So it was definitely not one. <laughs> <laughs> contestant number two, Dick Briggs. Um, so Dick Briggs was a cocaine supplier. Of course, with a name like that. He claimed to have been a special forces soldier during Vietnam and proudly stated that he was D.B. Cooper. He was like, yeah, that's me. I'm D.B. Cooper. Also not D.B. Cooper. (laughs) I'm Debbie Cooper. Me. In the flesh. And then in 1980, Briggs died in a one-way car accident. Although his... A one-way car accident? Like... They were on a one-way street? Yeah. Or there was one car involved? It was just his car. And the car crashed. And he died. 
And his friends thought that there was foul play involved. So it's a one-way car accident, quote-unquote. Foul play on he his probably, part? No, was it suicide? foul play on someone else's part. Someone oh, probably somebody ran cut the him brakes. off the road or cut the brakes. Ah, uh, somebody, none from a sound of music, the sound of music, Tim. Okay. They cut that guy's brakes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> they cut that guy's brakes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that is contestant number two, Dick Briggs. He died. And we don't know. Dick he said Briggs, he was. No breaks. Dick Briggs, no breaks. <laughs> no breaks. All, all Briggs, no breaks. All Briggs, no breaks. All right. Contestant number three is uh, Lynn Doyle Cooper. LD Cooper. Mm-hmm. Oh. So Doyle Cooper was a Korean War veteran. And he was proposed as a suspect in 2011 by his niece, Marla Cooper. All right. So, is it because their last name's Cooper and this guy's sketchy? Just listen. Dan Cooper wouldn't have used his real fucking name, would he? Probably not. Anyways, Marla Cooper. All right, Marla's eight. We're going back in time. Marla is eight. And Marla recalled her uncle, Doyle Cooper, and another uncle of hers, which was unnamed, which didn't make any sense, planning something, quote, very mischievous, unquote, involving the use of, quote, expensive walkie-talkies, unquote. <laughs> And this all happened at her grandma's house, which was... Expensive uh, walkie-talkies. In 1971. Fuck yeah. (laughs) That's how you know there's spooky shit going on. Oh my gosh, we're going hunting. Yeah. Well, and so this was happening at her grandmother's house, which was 150 miles southeast of Portland. So like close enough, you know? And then the next day, Flight 305... Mr. 305, was hijacked. And weirdly enough... The uncles were out hunting turkeys together. Mm. Spooky, scary. My uncle hijacked a plane because I don't know anything because I'm eight. Like. (laughs) So did Doyle disappear? So. Is that the. L.D. Cooper, Doyle Cooper, came home wearing a bloody shirt, which I'm like, if you're turkey hunting, kind of makes sense. But Cooper, L.D. Cooper, said that it was the result of an auto accident. So nothing is making sense. Nothing about this suspect, nothing about this person is making Wait, sense. Wait, what if all the suspects are the same person? L.D. Cooper. And that Cooper. person is D.B. Cooper. Yeah, because auto accident. Yeah. Guy dies. Yeah. It's all connected. Doyle's Look not you. lying. Your Doyle worms, is not lying. Your worms are working hard, bitch. Yeah, yeah. So it's been the gummy worms I've been having. <laughs> so the FBI announced. It's a very worm eat worm world. <laughs> Worm eat worm world. <laughs> so the FBI obviously follows up on this suspect or this lead, whatever. And they announced that the DNA taken from something that LD Cooper had did not match the partial DNA that was left on the clip on tie. So check that one off. It is not Doyle Cooper. It made sense though. Yeah. Um, contestant number four, Richard McCoy Jr. Dick McCoy Jr. Yep, Dick McCoy. So Dick McCoy was born in 1942, and he was an Army veteran who served two tours of duty in Vietnam. After the military service, he became a warrant officer in the Utah National Guard. So he was serving up warrants, bitch. In Utah. I gotta scratch my eye. Yeah, Mormon warrants. Um, They're different (laughs) from regular warrants. They're, like, meaner. They're a little more condescending. Um. (laughs) You sped two over. Yeah. Do you not even think about what the children 
What could ha- what could happen to the children yeah. if you're going that fast in your car? How dare you? You, you disgraced be, you, Salt Lake. You, you have, called it <laughs> salt Sodium Lake. lake. <laughs> sodium. <laughs> this is a bad joke. All right. What so, crime do they do there? I in guess Utah, drugs. drinking alcohol. Oh, yeah, that's Polygamy, right. Polygamy, that's a crime. It is. In Utah, it's a crime. That's kind of counterintuitive. Yeah. Anyways, so um, he was a warrant officer in the Utah National Guard, and he was also an avid recreational skydiver. Mr. Rick Dick McCoy. So let's talk about the dumbest thing on the planet. So it's April 8th, 1972. Okay. Four and a half months after D.B. Cooper jumps out of the plane and is never seen again. Dick McCoy boards United Airlines flight 855, a Boeing 727 with aft stairs, air stairs, in Denver, and began brandishing a hand grenade and an unloaded handgun. He demanded four parachutes and $500,000. And after the delivery of the money in the parachutes at San Francisco International Airport, he ordered the plane back into the sky and jumped out over Provo, Utah. You want to hear the best part about that story? He sounds like a copycat. He is a copycat. He's an exact copycat. But the best part is, is that the grenade that he was brandishing to people to, like, threaten people. (laughs) It's an avocado. No, it was a paperweight. (laughs) worse than an avocado so he literally copycats db cooper four and a half months later for twice as much money and then he gets away with it again jumps out over provo utah and leaves behind a handwritten hijacking instructions he like handwrit hand wrote handwrit his own fucking instructions (laughs) on how to hijack the plane and he also read a newspaper so he left a fingerprint on the newspaper and then he gets arrested on April 9th with the ransom cash in his possession, and he receives a 45-year prison sentence. Okay? What so, an idiot. So he goes to jail. How did he get caught? The exact copycat crime. I don't know, but he had the cash on him, so they were able to prove that it was him. And they knew that it was him because he left the fingerprint on the magazine. They probably he did were just sloppy like, work this Yeah. Time. Like, he did sloppy work. So, So, two years later... He escaped from Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary with several accomplices by crashing a garbage truck through the main gate. Oh, my God. And then he was on the run for three months before they found him in Virginia Beach and he was killed in a shootout with FBI agents. Tight. A parole officer and a former FBI agent asserted that they had identified him as D.B. Cooper, but McCoy refused to admit or deny that he was Cooper. And the FBI does not consider him a suspect because of mismatched age and description and evidence that he was in Vegas on the day of the hijacking. He also, his DNA, they had his DNA. Right. I'm sure it wasn't him. Yeah. So our last suspect here that we're going to talk about is Robert Rackstraw. Really? Yep, Robert Rackstraw. So this one's fucking nuts. So just like keep your pants on. Um, so, Robert Rackstraw was born in 1943, and he was a troublemaker child. Uh, uh, eh. And then the military made him like a good boy. The military really whipped him into shape. Um, and he joined in 1969. Um, he served on an Army helicopter crew and a couple other units during the Vietnam War. So, he was very experienced. He was discharged from the military in 1971, and he sent a weird threatening letter to the military. And he was like, God, I hope I don't do anything with all this knowledge I gained from the military. What the fuck? (laughs) 
Yeah. I'm serious. That's he what is he said. Rack's jaw. So then he was working for Bell Helicopter in Iran. So at the time, the political climate in Iran was not good between America and Iran, right? Yeah. So it's assumed that you would have to have high-level security clearance to be able to work for a company in such, you know, uneasy yeah. political waters, right? So he could have been working for the CIA while over in Iran, so he got arrested and deported back to the U.S. to face uh, explosives possession charges and check fraud charges because he took out a loan under his wife, his newly wife's name and was t- like writing checks out under this loan for this business that he got. And he was what writing bad fuck? checks under his wife's name and under what his a name. Dick. Yeah. So then, several months later, while he was released on bail, he attempted to fake his own death by radioing a false mayday call and telling controllers that he was bailing out of a rented plane over Monterey Bay. (laughs) Then... Then he lands safely. Then police arrest him in Fullerton, California, on an additional charge of forging federal pilot certificates. Oh my gosh... And the plane that he claimed to have ditched that was like going down when he was like, mayday, mayday, mayday. They found it repainted in a nearby hangar. (laughs) They'll never notice. In 1978, 1979-ish, he was being kept in police custody in solitary confinement because they thought he was D.B. Cooper. And then they eliminated him as a suspect in 1979 after no direct evidence of his involvement could be found. And he spent the rest of his life minding his business. Like he paid his, he did his time, you know, whatever. And the rest of his life, he was a good citizen. So he went to jail. He served his time, all that stuff. Right. But there's one other person that like cannot let Robert Rackstraw go as a suspect. Okay. And that is this man named Thomas Colbert. And Thomas Colbert is a fucking weirdo. And I'll say it. I don't care. I don't care that he has a Netflix special out right now that what? I watched like <laughs> six times. Uh-huh. He's a fucking weirdo. And all he does is say shit because of confirmation bias. And it makes me so, 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 so mad. So this entire Netflix series that I watched was absolutely bonkers. Um, the intro to the series, like every episode, was like this like Mad Men 50s-esque, like 2D graphic of like people jumping out of planes and bags of money and shit. And then it's like this like documentary series about D.B. Cooper and like who they are. But it all revolves for like the last two episodes of the four episode series. It all revolves around Thomas Colbert and this team of people that he specifically put together because he almost died when he was 11 and he was in a coma and he came out of the coma and his dad said, you need to know why you were put back on this earth. And he said, I know why it's because I need to figure out who D.B. Cooper is. You're fucking kidding me. (laughs) No. I'm literally not. This man is crazy. He has spent hundreds of thousands of his own dollars trying to figure out who D.B. Cooper is. And half of that has been wasted on Robert Rackstraw. They tried to bribe Robert Rackstraw into a TV show slash movie slash book deal where they tried to basically get him to confess 
that he was D.B. Cooper. And then he was telling them that he had um, lawyers in D.C. that would, like, get him all figured out after he confessed and that no one was going to convict, like, a lo- a, like a legendary hero because no one got hurt, you know? So then... Oh, my God. Yeah, Tom Colbert and this, like, team of fucking retired old farts, literally, like, clumps of ash just walking <laughs> around. They're You're about to die. because you did something right they start hunting him down at his place of work there's literally one instance where they try to schedule an interview with him i don't even need to look at my script for this this is how well i know it because i've watched it so many times they try to schedule an interview with him right uh-huh and robert agrees to the interview and he says yeah i'll, fuck, I'll fucking talk to you about it whatever then robert flakes Okay, Robert says, never mind, I don't want to do the interview. I realize I like, who you are. Yeah, I don't like and this. I don't think I like this, and I talk to my lawyers, and I really don't think I like this. And so then they wait a couple months. He's still flaking on him. He's like, yeah, I'll be there, and then doesn't show up, period. Love that energy for you, Robert. Uh. But then Thomas Colbert and his, like, team, they all have, like, sneaky cameras on. And, like, one of the guys... <laughs> sneaky cameras. Yeah, well, like, the they're Google... cameras, but they're sneaky. The Google glasses yeah. cameras and shit. And they had like a like a film crew in it, like in a car parked really far away with like binoculars. They oh had stupid God. little two way radios, like just above and beyond. All because they think that this man is DB Cooper, even though there's no evidence tying him to it, no evidence whatsoever. The only thing they're going off of is his like past experiences That's fucking crazy. and the fact that he was like involved, like he was incarcerated before. Happened to be a doctor. Yeah. So then... I mean, I know he wasn't a doctor, but, like, literally just fit one thing, and they're like, oh, it's him. Yeah. Can you imagine? And then, like, they were talking about, like, side-by-side photos, and they go into this whole fucking segment in one of the episodes where they're, like, cracking codes, and they were, like, analyzing the note that D.B. Cooper gave to the, the stewardess or the flight attendant, and they were, like assigning each letter of the alphabet a number and then putting those numbers together and just confirmation biasing themselves in a circle. Oh my God. Nuts. Craziest fucking shit ever. So anyways, they hunt him down with their little sneaky cameras, their secret cameras, at his place of work, which was a little marina in florida how okay why are people allowed to publish anything i realize that would eliminate us from putting out a podcast <laughs> Free press. but somebody put out a fucking documentary where half of its viewers probably are going to believe this shit well, so, uh, and we'll, not realize we'll get to, we'll get because to. the american education system oh my God. doesn't teach you this shit it's been so long since I've had to get you off of a soapbox. Oh, I'm not even on the soapbox yet. There <laughs> I'm, I'm just so on the many... ladder. <laughs> Literally. Go no. get your crane, because no, I'm going to be here no, for an I hour. No, I don't want to get the crane. Fine. I have to call the guy. <laughs> I don't want to call him. I don't want to talk to him right now. Okay, but anyways, they go and they do this like sneaky little like interrogation style shit. Meet cute. And, yeah, a little meet cute. Little <laughs> little meet accuse. Ooh. Ooh. That was a good one. Um, So I looked at Annabelle for confirmation. No? Okay, never mind. So... They get their little hodgepodge team of TMZ investigators, right? And they send in, like, one of their guys. And he's like, oh, I'm blah, blah, blah. I've been trying to do an interview with you. Just kind of, like, man on the street, like, jump them, you know, when they're least expecting it. And they'll talk to you. They have to talk to you, you know? Yeah. And so then they try to bribe him into the whole book deal, movie deal, TV deal. Just confess. Just say you're D.B. Cooper. For $24.99, you can get this. (laughs) 
And a book deal. With three payments of $200, $299.99, you too can be accused of a crime and convicted. He walks up with a briefcase and a trench coat filled with goodies. He's yeah. like, look, we have this right. option or well, we have this. But that's what the, that's also another thing that they did. They said that they interviewed his friends and his family and they all pointed the finger at him being D.B. Cooper. They were lying. What the fuck? Yeah. His friends were lying? Or? I guess uh, people around him at the time of the crime or whatever. Like, literally just grasping, grasping for straws at this point, Thomas Colbert. So then, so then, they offer the book deal, they offer all that shit. They waterboarded them all. They were just like, (laughs) is this man D.B. Cooper? We won't let you go till you say yes. So then, Robert Rackstraw is like, no, I don't really want anything to do with this. I'm not D.B. Cooper. I don't know how many times I'm going to have to tell you this shit. But, like, the thing about D.B. Cooper is, and we'll talk about it in a later episode, in one of our joint episodes that we have coming up, I will get into the Cooperites. Okay. There are people that are obsessed with this case. There are people Ooh. that there is a convention for D.B. Cooper. We'll get to it. A Coopyvention. A Coopyvention. Uh. So then Robert Rackstraw's like, I literally want nothing to do with you. Um, please leave me alone. And the interview guy, one of the guys that works for Thomas Colbert, is like, oh, no, no, I'm not going to leave you alone. So then, like two weeks later, they follow him to where his storage unit is, where, like, he keeps all of his, like, boat shop stuff or whatever. And they start literally, like, like TMZ-style Robert Rackshaw, you D.B. Cooper. Robert Rackshaw, why won't you just say that you're D.B. Cooper? Robert Rackshaw, you know, innocent men don't hide in storage facilities. Like, just heckling him. Just heckling the shit out of him. And then Robert Rackshaw comes out and he's like, hey, I talked to a lawyer and he doesn't think it's a good idea that I fucking talk to you guys. So, can you please fucking leave me alone? And then they never do. And they're like dead fucking sure that Robert Rackshaw is D.B. Cooper because of their codes and their eh. In their other stupid evidence that literally is nothing. <laughs> and then the end... If you're so sure... Okay, if they were actually sure, they would take it to court, you know? I mean, right? not that they could. They can't really file a criminal yeah. suit, right? No, I mean, right? I think still with the FBI, it's still a somewhat open case. Right, but, but they could do something. They could present yeah. it to someone. Yeah, because it's an airplane. If they don't have... Okay, if they don't have fucking enough evidence, they're going to do this shit. Yeah. That's the deal. But the thing is about D.B. Cooper is that you want to be the person that solves the D.B. Cooper case. Because it is one of the most unsolvable cases in the world. Why are they going after the guy that's obviously not it? There's you no evidence. Know, you want to know um, other cases that they're currently trying to solve? What? The Jimmy Hoffa case, who was a big mobster and nobody knows who killed him. I'm surprised they're not working on Tupac. That's a bunch of bullshit. That's racist, <laughs> if you ask me. Just saying. And um, they are also working on the Zodiac Killer. So this same team? Mm-hmm. Okay, this same team, like, focus on that other shit. <laughs> right, finish your first project. <laughs> then focus start on the shit with projects. substance. Right. So, I um I bet you what's-his-bucket Colbert is going to die and not get through I his life I just think it's fucking goal. hilarious that his life's mission, the reason why he was put on God's green earth, Put back on, Put God's, back green on earth. God's green earth is because he got returned. Returned to sender. Yeah, literally. God said, this one, this he one, needs he's, to be stupid. He's too fucked up. Yeah, he needs to be stupid for a little he longer. He needs to play with the American fuck toys. Yeah, exactly. That's not the word but, I wanted. 
But period. we're just going to keep going. We're going to keep going, and we're going to get to my favorite conspiracy theory about who D.B. Cooper actually is, or who D.B. Cooper was based off of. Okay? Uh-huh. So, here we go. D.B. Cooper was an Air Force veteran who was stationed in Europe and read a comic book called Dan Cooper. Now, if we remember at the beginning of the episode, they fucked up the reporters that were reporting yeah. on D.B. Cooper, fucked up his name. The, it should be Dan Cooper. It should Cooper. be Dan Cooper, because that was the one that was on the ticket. Yeah. Um, this is how stupid these people that are following <laughs> this conspiracy are. They don't even follow the true conspiracy. They follow, like, the... Well, it's like there's so many conspiracies about it. They don't follow the true story. Nobody fucking knows what happened. They found a bunch of water in a river. Or, <laughs> water in a river? Yeah, no shit's here. <laughs> they found a bunch of money in the river that was the money that D.B. Cooper had, and that's Dan it. Cooper. Dan Cooper. Sorry. I bet you they were like, D.B. Cooper sounds more mysterious. Mm. I guess. I don't fucking know. But anyways, so in this fictional series about Dan Cooper, he was a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot, and he took part in adventures in outer space and real events of that era. In one episode published near the date of the hijacking, the cover illustrates him parachuting. Because his job required him to throw cargo out of planes, Cooper would have worn an emergency parachute in case he fell out. This would have provided him with working knowledge of parachutes, but not necessarily the functional knowledge to survive the jump he made. He may have come from the East Coast, but took an aviation job in Seattle when he got out of the military. It's possible he lost his job during an economic downturn in the aviation industry in 1970 to 1971. If he was a loner with little or no family, quote, nobody would have missed him, unquote, after he was gone. Yeah. So it was just some guy that read a fucking comic book, probably. And then literally didn't know enough about jumping out of planes, but knew just enough to survive, maybe. And then probably just, like, got, like, you know? He just fell straight down onto a pine tree and died. Probably. And then the wildlife and the ecosystem ate up all the money and the bones and shit, you know? Yeah. Or a skinwalker took him. I don't know. Honestly, that's probably what happened. They were like... New conspiracy theory alert. Uh, uh, D.B. Cooper got stolen by a skinwalker. Look, a kebab in the middle of the forest. Yeah, exactly. Ooh, human kebab. (laughs) Yum. Um, And then, so all of that, that whole, like, D.B. Cooper Air Force pilot Canadian comic book thing. yeah. Don't correct me on my own fucking topic, bitch. So that whole segment came from the fucking FBI.gov. The Federal Bureau of in- Bureau of in- Purell, the Federal Purell of Investigation, hand the sanitizer, FBI. the FPI. Always cleaning the their f- hands of something. Federal Penis Inspector. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> so the at How the top do I get of that role at the top of this article, it said it had a little star and a date, and it was the 12th of July. In 2016, and it said, update, the FBI has redirected resources allocated to the D.B. Cooper case to focus on other investigative priorities. Literally, yeah. And that's it. They're like, why are we searching for this plane? Yeah, what are we doing? We have, like, murderers that we gotta go get. And, like, people that are not paying their taxes. And aliens. And aliens. We gotta figure out the alien thing before we start fucking around What's up with all these UFOs? Yeah. (laughs) So, anyways, that's my story of D.B. Cooper and all insane. of the silly little suspects and the silly little crime that happened and the silly little unsolved mystery that it is. Uh, love that. Um, for- but anyways, I don't know. That's it. 
Fuck. So fuck, man. F- like us if you like that story. Go listen to more. Re-listen to your favorite episode and tell me why it's your favorite episode when you leave us a rating. Yeah. Tell me why it's your favorite. Exactly. Okay. Um. Join us next week when we talk about. Uh, Who fucking knows? I don't know. Okay. Bye. Bye.